This is episode 4 with Joey Coleman on onboarding users in the first 100 days of their journey and turning initial experience into an advantage to increase retention and referrals. Have you ever wondered about what other SaaS companies are doing to grow their business? What channels are they experimenting with? Where are they finding traction? Welcome to How to SaaS, the go-to podcast for growing your cloud software company. I'm your host and growth strategist, Shiv Narayanan. I'm also the CMO of Wild Apricot, the number one membership software for small associations and nonprofits. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with founders, CEOs, and growth leaders who have successfully implemented a growth strategy to help you take your cloud software company to the next level. Are you ready? Let's begin. Hey everybody, welcome to How to SaaS. I'm your host and growth strategist, Shiv Narayanan, and we've got an absolute barn burner for you on today's episode. Our guest, Joey Coleman, blew the doors off the place during our interview, and I've been so excited about it that I actually moved his episode up in the batting order to be published so that more people could listen to it sooner. Some background on Joey, my interaction with his message began with his concept of the first 100 days and how companies lose up to 50% of their customers within that time period. We at Wild Apricot have taken Joey's courses and seminars and have really invested into incorporating his ideas into our initial user onboarding. We believe in it so much that we've created a cross-functional onboarding unit in our company that transcends your traditional departments of marketing, sales, customer success, account management, and support. While listening to the conversation with Joey, you'll learn the following. Why the first 100 days of a user's journey are the most critical why companies need to restructure their departments to change the way they think about and approach user onboarding, how the wrong KPIs can drastically impact user experience, and how to leverage experience as the foundation for increasing retention and referrals. We'll cover lots more as we get into the conversation, so let's jump right in. Here's my interview with Joey. All right, welcome to the show, Joey. How's it going? It's going very well. Thanks for having me, Shit. Likewise. And so uh, why don't you introduce yourself, tell the audience a little bit more about this 100 Days concept, and uh, we'll take it from there. Sure. So my name is Joey Coleman, and I help companies keep their customers. I do that as a professional speaker, a coach, and a consultant. And I focus on helping companies to create remarkable customer experiences, particularly in the pivotal first 100 days of the relationship. What's fascinating is research from around the world across all industries shows us that in the typical business, somewhere between 20 and 70% of the new clients or the new customers you get will quit doing business with you before they reach the 100-day anniversary. And in SaaS companies, this is particularly prolific. It hovers somewhere in the 18 to 27%, depending on specifically what industry within SaaS you're dealing with. What's fascinating is if you can get the customer to day 100, in the typical business, they will stay with you for five years. So these first 100 days are exponentially important to the long-term success of your business or your venture because the experience the customer has during that time period sets the framework for every experience they'll have going forward. And if you get that experience right, you can have a customer for life. 
Mm-hmm. And within the SaaS universe, it becomes even more important because you're investing all of this money up front to acquire that customer. And the promise or the return that you're generating from that customer is in monthly installments that they need to pay for at least 12, 12 months or often some companies, their return on uh, cost of acquisition takes uh, 18 months or two years. And so if you're losing that customer in the first 100 days, it's actually really costly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's there's a financial cost, as you illustrated, uh, that is huge. On top of that, there's a real psychological and emotional loss as well, because marketing and sales teams spend all their time driving people to the front door. And then once they sign up, we're supposed to keep them in the door. The problem is in the typical business, the marketing and sales function is so siloed from the customer experience or the customer service or the account management function, that what happens is there's a handoff where the baton gets dropped. And now the customer, uh, you know, is in trying to figure out how to use the software, trying to fumble around and get all the things that that crazy salesperson promised them in the pitch, and they're not finding it to be nearly as easy. So when they leave, not only does it leave everybody uh, internally having less revenue, but it leaves everybody internally feeling like they missed the ball. It creates strife between the different departments. And then you now have someone out in the world who is not, uh, not only are they not an advocate for your product, they are actually a detractor for your product. Because if any of their colleagues in the space say, hey, did you ever try this software? What did you think about it? All they're going to do is badmouth how difficult it was, how hard the onboarding process was, how they never really got up and running. And guess what? That's making the job difficult to drive new customers to your platform as well. Mm-hmm. So, in reality, what we're we're really talking about is not just you know the financial idea, but it really starts with this the essence of starting with the customer's experience, so that it is seamless across the journey. Whereas uh, most companies are not built like that, right? You have a department that's in charge of finding the lead, and then you have another department in charge of converting the lead, and then you have another department that's building the product that that lead that lead is uh, interacting with, right? So it's really about streamlining it and synchronizing all those activities. Absolutely. You know, historically, as we look at the development of corporations over the years, especially here in the United States, but we see this globally as well, as companies get bigger, they silo more and more. There's a marketing department, there's a sales department, and then there's, you know, kind of the service or delivery department. In the world of SaaS, there's also product development part departments. You know, then you obviously have accounting departments and everything, everybody's kind of functioning in their own independent world. Here's the the quick reason why that model is broken. The reason that model is broken is because that is not how your customers view your business. Stop and think about your own experience as a consumer and you go to buy something at a store. You don't really care which person in the store you talk to. You want everyone in the store to know about the product. You don't really care that the accountant sitting in the back has a certain job description that's different than the person who's at the cash register. The fact of the matter is our clients or our customers are increasingly dealing with every aspect of our business, and all of those interactions are combining to create their overall experience, their opinion of our brand, and what they think about interacting with us. And yet most companies haven't caught up with the fact that 
these decisions are, and, and these impressions, if you will, are more holistic in their creation. It's not just the single interaction I had with the salesperson. I'm also thinking about, was I on hold? And did they play hold music uh, when I called in to talk to that person? How quick is it to get a call back? How quick is it, is it to get my service ticket responded to? Uh, how easy was it for me to get the other people on my team up and running using this piece of software? All of these things contribute to the customer experience, not just the siloed elements that an individual and employee is responsible for. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm reminded of uh, Peter Thiel's book, uh, Zero to One. And in the first uh, page, he mentions that in every interview, he asks candidates, what important truth do you know that most people disagree with? Uh, and so are you suggesting that most companies are structured the wrong way to optimize the user experience? 100%. Yes. Most companies are completely structured in the wrong way. And in fact, they're also incentivized. And not, so, so, so let me, let me bake that out a little bit since there might be some people listening that are like, holy cow, what is this guy talking about? The, the very fabric of, you know, the corporation is at fault for this. And, and the fact of the matter is in many ways it is. Let's describe, let's look just preliminarily at the typical sales process. So marketing is doing all kinds of advertising and efforts to drive people into an environment where they are aware of our product and hopefully have become interested that our product or solution might be valuable. Then sales gets involved in the conversation and sales makes all sorts of promises about what the product will be able to do and gets the prospect really excited about the product being part of their solution set. Now, before anybody thinks I'm being critical of sales, I'm a sales guy at heart, right? So I'm not bashing on salespeople, even though that's the customer experience or the customer service team often is happy to do that. That's not at all what I'm saying. It's just that's what they're incentivized to do. And the salesperson, the marketing person is incentivized by how many people will come to the door. The salesperson is incentivized by how many people can you keep in the door. And then the salesperson hands off to the customer service team or the account management team whose responsibility it is to take into account all the expectations that were set in the marketing materials, all the expectations that were set in the sales conversation, and now deliver on executing on those as we roll out the product or the service to the new client. The problem in the very structure is no one is incentivized across the entire path other than usually the senior management team. So if marketing brings in leads that aren't really that good, it doesn't matter. They're bringing in leads. If sales closes clients that are tire kickers that are going to be with the company for two months and then going to leave, it doesn't matter. They've still been paid their commission. And now customer service or the customer experience team or the customer success team is left dealing with what shows up and they've had no say in recruiting the right type of people to the table. Because these individual departments are set up by that in the very structure of our businesses, and in the typical business, there is rarely any crosstalk or cross-interaction or cross-training between the different departments, what happens is we create these little individual fiefdoms where everybody's quick to point to the other departments and blame them when things go wrong, and people aren't as willing to take responsibility. So yeah, it's a structural problem from the very outset. Mm -hmm. And so how do you change that structure 
to be more about the user experience. I know a lot of uh, upcoming companies in Silicon Valley and a lot of other places are uh, creating what's called a user onboarding department, bringing all these functions together. So is that a good solution? It is a solution. I, I, I think, you know, kind, c- approaching it from a more holistic point of view, user onboarding, customer experience uh, is really valuable. You know, uh, Dan Pink uh, wrote a book a few years ago where he was talking about sales and, and the premise of the book was everyone's in sales. Uh, you know, building on that same methodology, which I agree with, everyone's in customer experience right? Everyone is responsible for the experience the customer has, because even when the customer gets their bill from the person in the accounting department, if that bill is not clear or easily understood or well-designed or easy to pay, then we are, you know, it's kind of a, a ding against the overall customer experience. So yeah, I think a big piece of this is bringing everyone under the same umbrella. The problem that a lot of companies face, and we're seeing this with some companies in Silicon Valley and other companies outside of Silicon Valley who bought into the concept that the execution is struggling, is it's not enough to just say, well, now we're all under the umbrella of user onboarding or customer experience because that really ends up feeling a lot like lip service. What is even more valuable has to do with, are the people from the the customer service team or the customer experience team sitting in on the meetings where the marketing team is reviewing the new website that they're gonna roll roll out? Are people from the customer experience or the onboarding team going to sales calls and seeing how the sales team actually presents the product? You know, it's it's about cross-pollinization and making sure that people appreciate the other jobs. One of the things that uh, I do with my clients when we go to on-sites, one of the very first things I do is I have everybody walk around, uh, go around the room. We, we do cross-functional meetings where we have people from every department, and I have them tell them about what the best parts of their job are and what the worst parts of their job. Because the issue of the problem is in the typical corporation in America, everybody presumes that they're working in the department that is the most difficult to work in. Right. Everybody believes that their job is the hardest job in the company. I was recently doing an event for a a software company up in Canada, and we were talking, and the majority of the people on the product development team and on the customer account management team thought that all the salespeople do is go to nice lunches and wine and dine people and try to get them to sign with these fat expense accounts. They didn't realize how depressing it is to go to meeting after meeting after meeting and think you've got the client in the bag. And then the client says, we've actually decided to go with your competitor. And they also hadn't thought about the fact that the salespeople were paid on commission. And so after all those hours spent and all that work, they didn't get a check. And so they were struggling to pay their mortgage and put food on their table. So right. the fact of the matter is most of us, now I, I've had a really eclectic career, right? I've had a lot of different positions. I've played a lot of different roles. So I think I have an increased appreciation for the difficulty of the variety of jobs that exist within an organization. But the average employee doesn't have that. You kind of start down a path and invariably you end up working in that department mostly for the rest of your life, whether it's with that department in a specific company or that type of department across different companies or organizations you might work for. The whole idea is the grass always seems greener for the other, you know, on the other side of the fence. But when we start to really learn about what those folks have to go through, the reality becomes a lot more visible and visceral. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing is 
this concept of empathy uh, within the culture and truly understanding how each department is approaching uh, their interaction with the customer and then working together to understand how you can streamline that. And also this idea of cross-pollination that you mentioned can really uh, is the cultural way to solve the problem. It's not like, it's not a tactic. It's more of a, a mind shift in how you approach the culture. Totally. At the end of the day, this type of approach to business is a philosophy. It's a way of doing business. It's acknowledging that the customer experience is so important that the employee experience should be equally as important, and those things are intertwined. And the only mm -hmm. way I think you can have true appreciation for the customer experience is to walk in their shoes and realize how varied their experience is depending on which part of your business they're interacting with. Right. You know, if so, the interaction with the sales guy is really awesome, but the interna interaction with the accounting department is horrible, they they end up canceling themselves out. And instead, your experience is blah, right in the middle, which means I'm not going to renew. I'm not going to tell my friends about this. And you're lucky if I'm going to stay for the full year. Mm -hmm. and, and so do you think metrics uh, for each of the respective departments really contribute to the problem? Because within marketing, you have a key metric of having a lead commit and then sales has a commit for a revenue. And then you look at customer support and they have to answer calls at a certain rate or have an average handle time of a certain amount of minutes. How much do you think metrics are creating the wrong incentives for employees to not be able to move past that and build this uh, uh, other culture that we're talking about? It's a great question. But in their, in their very nature, I don't think metrics are bad. I don't think tracking metrics is a bad thing. I think the problem is when you're tracking the wrong metrics. Let me give you an example. Uh, Zappos is a company that I'm sure all the listeners are familiar with. They sell shoes online. Uh, in consistently rated as one of the best customer experiences in the world. Fantastic organization. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with them many times over many years. They were a client. And one of the first things and most uh, impactful experience I had is they run a huge call center in uh, Las Vegas. Now, what's interesting mm -hmm. about call centers is they are notorious for turnover, right? They are absolutely notorious. Call centers probably have some of the worst turnover of any job on the planet. And Zappos is exponentially better at retaining their call center employees than anyone else. And I was really fascinated in this. You know, you look at a, a job that most people think as a low-paying job that is high turnover, not very valuable, uh, valuable to the company, but not as valuable to the person doing the job. And here, Zappos has turned the industry uh, on its head and has high retention, completely engaged, excited employees. One of the reasons for that is they do not have a call time requirement. At many companies, the goal is to process the call as quickly as possible and move on to the next call. Zappos doesn't have that at all. Instead, Zappos has an award and a running tally for who was on the phone the longest. Stop and think about that. The award right. that they give is for the person who stays on the phone with the customer the longest. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure what the current record is, but it is north of 12 hours. 
I was there recently and they, they mentioned that there have been times when, you know, seven hours or eight hours, somebody, somebody could be on their entire shift on just one call. Exactly. And there have been times where people have stayed on past their shift ending because they're still on the call. Now, when we think about metrics, somebody could say, well, that's insane. Look at all that wasted time, that wasted money, that wasted effort. But one of the things Tony Shea, the CEO, has done brilliantly is he's created a culture where I'm not interested in you rushing to get off the phone. I'm interested in you being able to give the customer the experience they need to have. And I'm interested in them being able to feel like they actually spoke to a human being as opposed to someone whose just job it is to kick them out as quickly as possible. You know, there there's a recent study that came out that said um, when they asked customers, especially in dealing with call centers, 88% of the customers said that their primary goal is to solve the problem in one call. Mm-hmm. So what's more important, to get the problem solved or to get off the phone quickly? Well, from the customer's perspective, it's to get the problem solved. Ironically enough, from the business's perspective, it should be to get the problem solved as well. Right. Right? Because then they don't call back. Right. And, and, th- and so- then that's a great example of uh, the problem isn't that the wrong, we're employing metrics. The problem is that we're employing the wrong metrics, which is, let's say, average call handle time when a better metric would be first call resolution, even if it takes a lot longer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, again, as I'm sorry, I'm not opposed to metrics. I just think it's really important to make sure that your metrics align with the behavior you're trying to condition your employees to have. Going back to our conversation about silos, I would love to see every company create as part of their commission structure for their salespeople retention bonuses. Mm-hmm. So if the company renews a year later, the salesperson who made a, a sale a year ago gets a little bonus. Why not? Yeah. Isn't that the behavior we want to be incentivizing? And that, by default, would make sure that the salespeople are bringing the right kind of people to the table. Same with marketing. Marketing should be incentivized based on how many of the leads actually convert, not how many leads there are, because that will focus Mm -hmm. them on bringing the right types of leads. And I think everybody, the, the more you can make sure that every employee in your business has some skin in the game as it relates to the customer experience, the happier you'll be. This also spins up into stories of how do the customer experience stories get told? So when a customer has a fantastic experience on the phone with one of your call center reps, do we let the marketing team know about that? Do we let the accounting department know about that? Not usually. Why shouldn't they be able to join in the celebrations as well? You know, as a general rule, most companies are really good at celebrating in the sales department, and that's about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Sales department gets to ring a bell. We got a new customer. They get to have a party. They get to go out and celebrate landing the new gig. Does the customer retention department have that same type of culture and those same type of rewards? Does the accounting department that has gotten that customer to pay their bill consistently when it was due every month for the last 12 months, do they get to throw a party and have a celebration? Something to think about. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I want to connect this uh, to a bigger part of the conversation, which is this is really an organizational philosophy shift, right? Because uh, it's not like we can switch to this kind of a mindset 
and see a return in, in a month, right? You're really asking organizations to change the way they operate. They're, that might involve some restructuring or different meetings or different ways of talking to each other or different information sharing, a lot of things, right? So it's really a long game that you're playing. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, let's be candid. Anything that can happen quickly probably isn't going to be that impactful or that worth it, right? As human beings, like the, the instant gratification, well, yeah, it's cool and it's fun, never is as impactful on our life experience as the things that required a little more time and a little more work. Now, the interesting thing about adopting a customer-centric philosophy is while, yes, you usually don't see the major impact until the long term and that the impact grows kind of like in every SaaS company is trying to grow their recurring revenue, right? The customer experience and the impact on your business grows month after month after month and compounds. That being said, you will experience something sooner rather than later. The fastest thing that the majority of my clients experience is a dramatic increase in employer morale. Because now employees feel more vested and more committed to what they're doing. We're also heightened and more aware of the experiences our customers are having. And as a result, we're feeling more juiced about providing them with exciting experiences. And so we're getting little wins faster, right. which makes for right. a really interesting argument that we have the long play for the big wins, but we're getting lots of little positive dopamine hits as well. Mm -hmm. And and I really like the analogy you gave with that uh, recurring revenue stream. It's almost like every single month you're adding new account revenue similar to that. You're adding new, better experiences for your customer. But the next year, it's not like those experiences go away. They compound and then you add more new experiences on top. And in five years, then you have a, a massive snowball. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and not only as that time grows, but then it gets more exciting because – in the typical business, if I were to get you, if I were to get a business to focus on, well, what are five things we can do to create great experiences for our customers? And let's say they work really hard, they come up with those and they start creating those and the customers start having those experiences. After about six months or so, the customers are having these great experiences and consistency is important, but the surprise factor and the delight factor starts to lower a little bit because the new norm is a great experience. Mm -hmm. So how do we take the experience and amp it up even more? How do we move from a great experience to a fantastic experience? How do we move from a fantastic experience to a world-class experience? How do we move from a world-class experience to a remarkable experience? And the creativity that we get to bring to bear and the additional things we get to focus on can be really motivating and really fun, especially when we've done a good job of building systems that allow us to consistently deliver that experience so that we get to stack and add on and multiply as opposed to firefight and, you know, rush to deal with the crisis in the moment and then move on to the next crisis. Right. So let's give the audience an example of that. Um, how do you uh, build an experience that you can constantly improve? Like uh, maybe talk about multi-channel uh, communications. Sure. So a, a couple a couple thoughts, and, and I'll come back to the multi-channel communications. What, what's fascinating to me, and I say this respectfully, is there's a lot of companies that are like, oh, we need to be in every channel possible, and we need to be doing a great job. Mm -hmm. The problem is they usually forget the second part. 
They just focus right. on we need to be in every channel. Are we on Pinterest? Are we on Facebook? Are we on Twitter? Are we on Periscope? Are we on Snapchat? We got all of those? I would rather see companies be on one social media platform or dealing with one channel and do it right instead of being piss poor at a dozen channels, mm -hmm. right? So the, a big piece of this is about getting really focused. The second piece about this is the different tools that you can use to create a great experience. So one of the things I do as part of the first 100 days methodology is we look at six key tools that you can use in the first 100 days to create a remarkable customer experience. Those tools are as follows. In-person interactions, email interactions, mail interactions like physical mail, snail mail, the old school, phone interactions, videos, and gifts and presents. Six different communication tools that you can use to create an experience with the customer in the first 100 days. Now, what's interesting, and I've had the pleasure of working with a number of SaaS companies, as a general rule, you guys have the email, like, that's your sweet spot, right? There's a lot of right. email. There's a lot of electronic communication. Occasionally, that rolls into phone. And every once in a while, there's an explainer video right? Or maybe some learn how to use our software by watching like a screencast video or something like that. That's usually it. Most SaaS companies tell me, Joey, we could never do in person. Mail, are you kidding me? Who opens their mail anymore? And presence, whatever. At best, I'm going to give you, you know, uh, a, a mouse pad or a USB stick that has the company logo on it. That's kind of where mm -hmm. we tap out on presence. By using these different tools and building a consistent interaction, we can start to have different types of interactions with our customer, which automatically is going to augment their overall experience. So what do I mean by that? What I'd love to do is have you take from the day someone becomes a customer until 100 days after that, what are the different ways you're communicating with them? What are the different ways you're experiencing it? Now, SaaS companies are unique in that you guys are actually fairly good at the onboarding, and I'm speaking generally here, is compared to non-SaaS companies because that's where your revenue lies. So, of course, you're following things like, okay, how are we getting the account set up? Are we getting the software implemented at their facility? How are we going to increase their user involvement, et cetera, et cetera? But what happens all too often is, again, it's very metric-driven instead of personally driven. One of the things that I think would be interesting to look at is if you're bringing on, let's say, a new, a new company that has 100 seats and they have 100 employees, what are you doing to make sure that all 100 people are up and running on the system? Because one of the things in the world of SaaS, and I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, the, the time that they're actually using your software, right, the time that it's live, the time that they're in working it, the higher we can get that number, the better our retention is as a general rule, right? Um, doesn't always work that way, but in most SaaS companies, as a general rule, the number of people using and the duration of the time they're using it contributes to the overall success. Well, you also know which users aren't using it. So what about doing in-person remedial training classes for the people who aren't? Because probably the reason they're not using it is because they're scared of it. What about giving prizes to the people who are your super users? 
What about making some of your users, super users, kind of going with a train the trainer model and incentivizing them to get their coworkers trained? What about shooting custom videos and sending them via email to the people when they reach certain milestones or they've accomplished certain tasks within the software? Again, this all gets customized down to the individual product you're selling. But stopping to think about some of the ways we could reward and incentivize our end users for actually using this is really interesting, right? Because typically what happens, you know, this is where I think getting into the customer shoes is really important. If we take that example of the 100 users using our software, how many of those 100 people would you guess, Shiv, were involved in the decision to purchase this software? Quite a lot. <laughs> I would say at least 10. Ten, 10 people. Okay, so it's fascinating. What's fascinating is, yeah, this is an interesting lesson in uh, perspective. You said quite a lot is 10 people. Mm -hmm. 10 out of 100 people is only 10%. It's right. actually a very small percentage. Yes, it's a lot of people that you have to convince in the sale and the process might take a while. But there are 90 people that were never involved in that conversation who showed up at work one day and were told, there's an entirely new software system you need to learn and you need to be up and running on it next week. Right? <gasps> right? That, I mean, who would want that kind of experience? No one. Now, the 10 people who were involved in the purchase decision, how many of them actually got into the system and used it, would you guess? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. no, right. And then again, it's Three. not that many people. <laughs> it's not that right. many people. It's an even smaller percentage. Now, we all think that our software is super easy to use, and we built something that has got a great UI and a great UX, and the customers love it. But the fact of the matter is, for the typical user, they are absolutely shell-shocked. It's like dropping someone in a foreign country where they don't know the language and saying, good luck finding dinner tonight. Right, right. And I can give you a live uh, example from our business is uh, we serve nonprofits and small associations who have annual board turnover. So the group that's using it today next year, they're just handing it off to the next board and they have no idea who we are, right? So exactly. it's almost like you have to reinvest in the onboarding of those uh, new administrators. Totally, totally. And I'd be willing to bet that that process, and I know you guys run a tight ship and you do a great job, but most companies don't even stop to think about that at all. They just mm -hmm. say, well, no, we, we need you to renew. They don't even stop to think, well, we're renewing into an environment where 95, 100% of the people are not going to be there anymore. We need to re-educate right. them. And we also know uh, research into education and learning tells us that different people learn better in different ways. So there may be some of your customers that are a little old-fashioned that a printed manual next to the computer sitting on their desk is the best way for them to learn. There may be other people that learn best with explainer videos. There may be other people that the best way to teach them would be to invest in an on-site to bring them up to speed. One of my clients that works in SaaS, one of the things that we developed is an ongoing training program that on a regular basis, when the company has hired a certain number of new employees, it automatically, automatically triggers an on-site that is done for free where the company will send a trainer down and train all the new employees. 
That's showing mm -hmm. a level of commitment to your customers and end users that is absolutely incredible. But when we did the math, we realized it was cheaper to send someone down and do a two-day training than to not have them renew. So, so talk talk about this fact or this uh, this metric that connects with this is uh, this cost of acquisition metric that really drives a lot of SaaS companies, right? Especially when your lifetime value is a low number, right? So, how do you connect an initiative like that with an increased cost of acquisition when your LTV is so low? Yeah, so a couple thoughts on that. Number one, in cost of acquisition, okay, I understand that that's an important metric and it's something that people look at. Do you know the fastest way to to reduce your cost of acquisition? There's two. There are two incredibly fast ways to reduce that cost. Any guesses to what those are? Referrals would be one. Correct. That's uh, the number and retention. one. Retention. Exactly. You and, nailed and it. And retention would be two. And here's the deal. Yes, A plus, gold star for Shiv. You knew both of them. Yet most businesses <laughs> don't stop and think about that. And it drives me freaking crazy. Because here's the deal. The cheapest marketing on the planet is an existing customer going to a prospect and saying, you're an idiot if you don't sign up to use this software. That is the cheapest marketing you guys can ever do. Because then the person shows up ready to buy. They show up primed. They show up excited, and all the selling has been done. Your cost of acquisition shifts from being a marketing and sales line item to being an order-taking item. All you're doing is showing up and saying, how many seats? How many, you know, how many implementations? Mm -hmm. How many locations? You're taking orders. It's a completely different conversation. So you can drop your cost of acquisition dramatically by really ramping up and bumping up your referral program. The other thing is, if you are running, in my personal opinion, the best companies in the world are the ones that grow their customers' business. So if your software is really as good as you think it is, if the company is using your software, they should be increasing their revenues. I don't care what your software is. It should either make them more effective, more efficient, they should be able to scale more. They should be able to sign more clients. They should be able to retain more of their clients. So if you're in a model where you're paying per user and you are helping to grow your client's company, as they have more users, your monthly fees are going up. This is a net win for everyone involved. Interests are aligned. So this whole discussion mm -hmm. about, you know, customer acquisition costs, yeah, it's important, but lots of times we put so much emphasis on that metric that we miss the fact that if we're actually doing a good job with our software and getting people to use it and it's having the impact on their business that it should, it's actually growing their business, they're having a remarkable experience, they're telling all their friends, and now it's becoming the industry standard. And once it becomes the standard, that's when things really get interesting. You know, there's a there's a great statistic out of uh, uh, Bain Consultants, right, where they figured out that a 5% reduction in customer defection. So if we can increase retention by just 5%, the typical mm -hmm. business is an increase in profits of 25 to 100%. 
Stop right. and let that sink in. For the non-math people listening, right, and I'm not a math guy, you might be thinking, well, wait, a 5% increase in retention increases profits 25 to 100%? Joey, that math doesn't make sense. Actually, it does. And the reason it does is because most businesses are already running at a profit. So keeping existing clients reduces marketing costs, reduces sales commissions, increases efficiencies, and by the way, all the fixed costs of running your business, like rent and keeping the lights on and paying for the various tools you use, those are already being paid for. So each additional customer you retain, a higher percentage of the fee that they are paying is profit because you're not having to go chase new ones. Fascinating stuff, uh, Joey. I, I love it. Um, especially the answer to the customer acquisition. I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to hear what you had to say about that one because I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about that particular number. So, uh, great answer. Um, I, I think I think we're close to wrapping up. So, I just I just want to hear. I mean, do you have any uh, results uh, that you can share or examples where uh, implementing something like this has really ramped up, let's say, referrals or increased retention and uh, decreased something like uh, a customer acquisition cost? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's there's case studies and examples of all different types of companies that have done this and, and had success with it. Um, let me tell you what I think is kind of an interesting story about a SaaS company that decided to, how shall I say this, go a little bit old-fashioned with their onboarding process. So let me break it down for you a little bit. This company makes software for managing records and policies in large hospitals, large medical institutions. Mm -hmm. Sexy, right? I mean, this is the stuff <laughs> dreams are made of, right? And I mean, it's just like, God love them. They're a fantastic company. I love them dearly. I'm not trying to bag on their product. But the reason I want to give this example is because it shows that even a company that's selling something that most people don't think is sexy, including the end users who are using this, don't think it's sexy, can have success. What we did is we looked at their onboarding process and we identified that it had something like 25 different steps from the moment they signed the contract to the moment where everybody in the hospital knew the software, okay? And what we did is we looked at those steps and we said, you know what, we can consolidate some of these and reduce them and we reduced them down to 19 steps. So automatically we're making a better experience because it's less painful for the project manager on the client side who's doing the implementation. Secondly, mm -hmm. we looked at the actual person who's responsible for the implementation. As a general rule, this is a woman who is in between age 40 and 60 who is doing kind of a project manager type task who is not necessarily computer savvy and is someone who was not at all involved in the decision to buy this software and doesn't have a whole lot of interaction with the other people in the hospital. And that's their experience. And so by exploring who the person responsible for the implementation was, we could design an onboarding and implementation process that was geared towards them. Now, this is really important for the folks listening because as a general rule, your onboarding processes have been designed by the product engineers. And I love me some coders. I'm married to one. But the fact of the matter <laughs> is not necessarily conscious of what the typical human being's experience is. 
That's not me digging, uh, you know, making a criticism. That's just the reality of the human condition. I'm a, I'm a student and a studier of the human condition, and I like to try to build things that fit the person. So what we did is, pre-working with Joey, they had a spreadsheet. Very few people love spreadsheets. And fewer people love Gantt charts and process charts and, like, where are we in the system. And software implementations for the client side, as a general rule, are the most painful experience they will ever go through as a professional. Now, for those of you on the SaaS side of the business making the software, you think, oh, what's the deal? We've made it so easy to understand, right? But you're not trying to force people who don't like to use computers and don't like to learn new things to learn your new system on a daily basis with your job on the line. So what we ended up doing is we said, how can we make this experience fantastic for the project manager? How can we get it out of the Gantt chart? How can we get it out of an Excel spreadsheet? And what we did is we created a puzzle, a physical puzzle with 20 pieces. As you recall, I said there were 19 steps. There are the 19 steps and the 20th piece is the congratulation piece. And the puzzle goes in a frame. And so at the very beginning of the project, Project manager gets an email or gets a gets a phone call saying, hey, tomorrow there's going to be a FedEx arriving for you. It'll arrive in the morning. We have our kickoff call in the afternoon. They get the package. They open it up, and it is a frame with 20 slots, and there are 20 mm -hmm. puzzle pieces. And they get on the first call, and they say, let us walk you through what this implementation is going to be. And using the photos from the puzzle piece, they tell the story of the implementation and how the client's going to be able to do it. And now, every time they have a call over the next three months of the implementation, at the end of the call, they say, congratulations, puzzle piece number four, the one with the megaphone, go ahead and put it in the frame. And at the end of the onboarding process, they have this framed picture that they can hang in their office that shows they've completed the implementation. Now, some of you listening might say, Joey, that sounds corny as hell. I would net that would not resonate with me. And my gut instinct is you are not a 40 to 60 year old woman working as a project manager doing policy management at a major hospital sitting in a cubicle. Because if you were, right. you think that's kind of cool. It really comes back to understanding the personas of who you're who you're trying to go after, understanding where they are in their journey, and then tailoring an onboarding experience that matches that, right? 100%. 100%. Because here's the thing, and this gets back to the human condition. We are very good at seeing the world from our point of view. Every person on the planet is really good at seeing the world from their own eyes and their own point of view. Mm -hmm. We rarely take the time to experience the world from someone else's point of view. And the mm -hmm. more you can do that, the better your customer experience will be. You're absolutely right that the average person in product development would not resonate with this type of a puzzle. But the end users do. And I care about the end users because if that project manager is excited about the software implementation, do you think that implementation is going to go well? Right. right. Absolutely. Out, they have reduced mm -hmm. that we're, we're, we're still getting the initial statistics in or the initial results in. But thus far, it is looking like on a three-month implementation process, we are cutting off two weeks 
of the process by having right. this puzzle because they're excited to complete the puzzle. So guess what? They just, stay on top of it. And guess what? That saves us money. And guess what? Our acquisition cost goes down. And guess what? Our implementation mm-hmm. cost goes down. And guess what? We now have a physical artifact that sits in their office about our brand that everyone who comes to their cubicle sees and asks about. I mean, right. it's like having a sleeper of, for our company physically sitting in their company singing our praises. Mm-hmm. Not, a, not, mm-hmm. not a bad way to go. So, so Joey, why don't you um, give the audience uh, a bit of a description about uh, how they can maybe work with you? Because I think this was a fascinating call, and we haven't really done a plug with some of our other guests, but I think uh, it's uh, required for this call. So uh, maybe talk about the 100 days or how they can just reach out to you. Sure. Well, thank you, Shiv. I appreciate that. So the best way to connect with me is to go to joeycoleman.com. That's Joey, J-O-E-Y, like probably some six- or seven-year-olds you know. Coleman, like the camping equipment, <laughs> C-O-L-E-M-A-N.com. You go to joeycoleman.com. You can learn all about the first 100 days of my work. A couple different ways to work with me. If you have found this presentation interesting or exciting or thought-provoking or inspiring, and there's an event coming up that you're looking for a speaker for, I spend about 50% of my time on the road giving keynote addresses leading workshops, leading on-sites for audiences, small, medium, and large all around the world. would be totally excited to explore that. In addition, I do consulting projects where I actually come into your company and help you build out a first 100-day strategy and plan. How do you build out a system that will allow you to deliver a consistent experience across the first 100 days so that we can get them to day 101 and by default, build you a customer for life? In addition, I do coaching where I work one-on-one with clients. So sometimes this is the head of an individual department or a CEO or with a smaller business, kind of working with their executive management team. We're doing phone visits and Skype calls. We build out your first 100 days program over the course of three or four months so that you have a customized program that is built for you. You go to the website. There are free resources. You can download a first 100-day starter kit that will really get the wheel spinning on this. When you do that, there's the option to opt into uh, some more regular communications from me. We're going to have a new course that will be all available online later this year. So all kinds of resources. But if this is all seemed interesting to you or you'd like to explore how to do this with your company, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to continue the conversation because my mission for what it's worth, Shiv, is I believe that if we increase the customer experience in your business and in the listeners' businesses, that that forces all other industries to increase the customer experience in their business and all boats rise together. Let me give you a quick example of how that works. A few years ago, Zappos decided we're going to do free shipping. If you buy a pair of shoes on our website, we're going to ship them to you free. Now, we took the fear of buying shoes online out of the equation, and we made it free and easy. Oh, by the way, returns are free too. Then Amazon does Mm -hmm. something very similar. Amazon will do free ground shipping. Well, guess what? Now, all the small little companies that were selling online have to have a free shipping option because that has right. become the new norm. 
the experience of not having to pay for your shipping has become the new norm. All boats have risen together. If we make customer experience a priority across all industries and all companies, every one of us will have a better experience in our day-to-day -day life, not only at the company we work, but also as we navigate our life as a consumer, buying products, buying services, having experiences, we will be having more positive experiences. And as a result, hopefully the whole planet feels better. That is a great message, Joey. And I can just give a live testimonial for Joey myself. Uh, we've been studying the 100 days for the last about a year and a half, and it's really impacted our user onboarding and the work we've been doing with that. So I definitely uh, recommend it for anybody that's listening. Um, so with that said, Joey, any final thoughts? No, just best of luck creating your experiences. Try your best to focus on what your customer is experiencing. Step into their shoes and then build your onboarding process around that. Don't forget that there are multiple ways that you can connect with your customers in the first 100 days and take a risk and experiment with some of those. You know, one little, one little plug or charge that I might give folks. Every one of you listening is walking around with a cell phone in your pocket that has a video camera attached to it that 30 years ago would have been more powerful than the video cameras being used by network TV. How often do you use that camera to shoot a video for your customers? You shoot videos and you mm -hmm. send them to the grandparents, you shoot videos on the road and send them to your kids or your siblings. How often do you actually shoot one and send it to your customer? Do yourself a favor, pull out your phone and shoot a video to a customer that's something like this. Hey, Bob, just listen to a crazy podcast with this guy that was talking about using our phones to shoot videos to let our customers know how much we appreciate them. And the first customer I thought of was you. You've been with us through thick or thin. You've been a loyal and valuable customer. We love working with you. We hope we're providing good value. And I want you to know that I am recommitting in this moment to make sure that you have the best possible experience with our company that you could ever imagine. It's a delight working with you. Thanks for your continued support. I look forward to seeing you again soon. And then send them that video. I promise you, you will not send two of these without getting a huge reaction from your customers. Fantastic, Joey. I love that. And I think we might do that too. <laughs> Good. Let's do it. Uh, and last... do it. Send me one, Ship. I want to see the video and we'll put it up on the website and we'll share it on the blog. That'd be great. Awesome. And uh, last but not least, uh, one best practice that I got from a podcaster that I really admire, Lewis House, uh, is to show appreciation for you, Joey, for doing this, uh, for caring so much for the customer experience and being an advocate for the customer and blowing the doors off uh, this podcast today. Thanks a lot. Uh, Shiv, my pleasure. You know, it's funny. Lewis is actually a good friend of mine, so that means a lot to me coming from you. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm so impressed by the work you guys are doing at Wild Africa. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. Thanks so much, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, likewise. Awesome. Thanks, Shiv. That's it for today's episode, guys. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes and to check us out at www.hattasass.com, and we will see you next time.